Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 Sleepers, and that was then, this is now. With the all-access patron membership, you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news. You will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what, Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 173 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Rachel Heng. Rachel Heng is the author of the novels The Great Reclamation, which we will talk about today. And as you listen to this, it is now out. It is out as of March 28th via Riverhead Books. Go buy it. Her other book is Suicide Club from 2018, which has been translated into 10 languages worldwide. And it won the Gladstone Library Writer in Residence Award. Her short fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, McSweeney's Quarterly, One Story, Kenyon Review, and has been recognized by anthologies including Best American Short Stories, The Pushcart Prize, Best Small Fictions, and Best New Singaporean Short Stories. She was recently longlisted for the 2021 Sunday Times Short Story Award, which is listed as the world's richest and most prestigious prize for a single short story. Her nonfiction has been listed among Best American Essays, Notable Essays, and published in Al Jazeera, Guernica, Bomb Magazine, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. She has received fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, Vermont Studio Center, Sewanee's Writer Conference, Fine Arts Work Center, and the National Arts Council of Singapore. Rachel received her MFA in Fiction and Playwriting for the Michener Center for Writers, UT Austin, and her BA in Comparative Literature and Society from Columbia University. Again, as of today, March 28th, The Great Reclamation is out. It is an absolute instant classic. You're going to want to buy it, and I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Here we are, myself and Rachel Heng. So, Rachel, good afternoon. It's afternoon on the East Coast there. I know you're in New York getting ready for tomorrow, which is a huge pub day, and you have an event tomorrow night. So, you know, first of all, welcome. It's, it's a pleasure to, to meet you in this virtual set, um, setting. And please tell us about how it feels with 
The book is coming out tomorrow. People who will be listening, it'll be today. It comes out March 28th, The Great Reclamation. Tell us about the tour, kind of like how it's feeling as you, as, as Pub Day approaches. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It is amazing to be here. Um, I am feeling, uh, I guess it doesn't feel real yet. Um, mm. It probably will tomorrow. <laughs> I will be going on tour. Um, so my first event is in New York, and then I'll be in San Francisco and Seattle. And then I'll be heading back to the East Coast, doing a virtual event, and then I'll be in Texas okay. for the San Antonio Book Festival. And then I'll be doing an event at in Austin, uh, which is kind of a homecoming because I I did my MFA there and started right. writing this book in in Austin, Texas. Okay. Any yeah. any particular places? I mean, all of the above, and I'll I'll put the links in the show notes to you know where to buy the book. But any particular bookstores maybe that you want to highlight? Um, really, just your local indie bookstore, like as much as you can support. You know, whatever. Yeah, whatever is in your local community. Um, I, yeah, I would love for it to be bought kind of widely across like lots of little bookstores. Sure. Well, yeah. so I'd love to know a little bit about where it all began. Like, um, you know, the book, the book traces Abun from age, I want to say seven or eight, seven, yeah, right to, you know, to in his thirties, maybe, maybe late twenties. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll talk about him and, and his connection just to Singapore as a whole, but I wonder like yourself born and raised, I'm not sure uh, when you moved to mm -hmm. the States or if there was an in-between from Singapore to the States. I moved here for um, college. So when I was 19. Yeah. So just like what what were you reading? You know, what was your relationship with the with with language languages? You know, what did you speak mm -hmm. growing up? Were you was English only in school? Was it at home as well? Mm -hmm. um, and who are some of those writers who really, you know, flipped the switch for you and made you want to want to be a writer and be a reader? Yeah, um, I well, I grew up speaking English. Singapore is a ex-British colony, um, and so English is sort of the first language um, in the country. Of course, that doesn't mean everyone speaks English at home. I happen to, um, uh -huh. because my my parents did. Uh, and then I learned Mandarin in schools, and at home, okay. my parents spoke Hokkien, so a dialect okay. of Mandarin. And as for what I was reading growing up, I think I read everything in our local libraries really um i i was that kid who would kind of steal library cards from my relatives in order to be able to go over the quota because you could only borrow four books and it just oh, no. wasn't, didn't i don't know yeah it's very low right it used right. to be eight and then at some point they changed it to four and i was very upset as like Shoot. a young child um and so i would you know yeah just like read as much as i could um in libraries but often it was very um I guess, American or British literature, you know, it wasn't really, I didn't actually know any Singaporean writers until uh, I was, you know, maybe a teenager or older. Mm. Um, and I didn't grow up reading that. What we studied in schools was very kind of British because we had the um, the Cambridge O-level system. So we do the mm -hmm. same exams as people do in England. So our, our syllabus was like Shakespeare and, you know, um, Thomas Hardy, people like that, Virginia Woolf. Okay. Um, and so I only discovered Singaporean writers much later. And as for being a writer, I guess I didn't know that you could be a writer. I, I know. you know, I guess I, I love to read, but I never really, maybe because so much of what I read was older, I assumed that all these people were dead. <laughs> yes. It was only much later that I realized, oh, writing is a thing that you you could do. And I came to writing fiction in my mid-20s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and I wrote my first book while I was working a corporate job, um, kind of that was for the Singapore government for a scholarship because they had sponsored my university education. That was how I was able to come to the U.S. Okay. Yeah, and so started writing fiction while I was working for them. 
found that I really loved it and, you know, wanted to pursue it further. And then after I sold my first book, Suicide Club, I actually applied to MFA programs and ended up going to an MFA um, at UT Austin. You kind of did it in reverse, huh? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Suicide Club came out in 2018. It's been, maybe this information is a little bit outdated even. It's been translated into 10 languages. It won the Gladstone Library Writer in Residence Award. Pretty auspicious debut. <laughs> Thank you. And you're following it up, you know, five years later with The Great Reclamation, which, mm -hmm. you know, just having finished it today and it's it's so fresh in my mind. It's going to be fresh in my mind for a while. It's, it's so resonant. And the characters just stand out. And it's just... You talk about Singapore and and writers. I mean, you've put such a a story, such as it's such a saga. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm so impressed. I'm sh I want to ask you about the the research you did for the book. I'm I'm sure there was a lot of formal and informal research. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a book that's uh, 400 some odd pages. It covers many years. It covers incredibly pivotal years in in Singapore's history. What mm -hmm. about the research? And I guess even starting with what were some of the seeds for the book? Like, what made you say like I want to write this book? Or maybe it it morphed and started out as a different book. Yeah. Um, so let me answer the, the second question. First, <laughs> Sorry, I threw maybe. a lot at you. Um, you know, <laughs> I, um, well, you know, so I, you know, I grew up in Singapore and I, I would, and the Singapore that I think maybe most Americans would know is, is the one you see in, in like movies, right? Like Crazy Rich Asians or mm -hmm. Westworld or whatever, this very like modern urbanized uh, landscape. Um, and that is the Singapore that I grew up in. Um, but I would hear my mother talk about how she had grown up and that was completely different. Like she grew up in a wooden shop house that didn't have, you know, had a tarp for a ceiling that would like flood every time it rained. Oh, yeah. She had relatives who lived like in much more rural areas where they had like outdoor outhouses, you know, they still live like, you know, within the rainforest essentially. Mm. And just like hearing about it felt like it was a completely different world, a completely different mm. place, even though it was the very same country and not very long ago, right? Like if you think about her right. lifetime, that was in the in 60s and 70s. Yeah. So just a matter of decades, the fact that the island could have changed so drastically. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I often hear about this from all the Singaporeans. And so I think writing this book came out of um, that curiosity and kind of that desire to revisit this time and to think yeah. about what it must have been like to like live through that dramatic change where your home is like literally transforming before your very eyes and like beneath yeah. your feet right and being yeah. caught up in that change and the excitement of that but also the you know the fear and the like sadness and the loss um, and like all of those conflicting emotions that come with great change. Right. Singapore, I know, I know prides itself on being multi-ethnic. I mean, there are laws in place, right? I mean, I would, am I correct? The main ethnicity would be, would be Chinese, some maybe 70-ish percent. Yeah. The majority. Yeah. Right. Chinese. And then Malay and mm -hmm. then Indian, you know, with mm -hmm. some other groups as well. How mm -hmm. much, how much of that is, you feel artificial is not the word, but but growing up there, how much of that you feel was natural? Just like that's just the way it is here, and how much? Well, of I mean, that, Singapore has uh, a long history of multiculturalism, so that yeah. isn't that part isn't planned. It's not that you know it's deliberately multicultural. Singapore was always um, even before the British came. Right. It used to be because of its location. It was a trading port that was under sort of different empires and belonged to different people. Um, but it always was a hub for immigration and there were always different groups of people coming in and settling or leaving and so on. Um, and so when the British came, that was sort of uh, formalized, right? They, the, okay. It was the British who set up these different locations of like, oh, this neighborhood is going to be the Chinese mm -hmm. neighborhood, this neighborhood is going to be the Malay neighborhood and so on. So that was a very sort of imperial imposition. 
okay. the, the, the division and the organization of race. Um, and, and in some ways, I think the, the, the quotas maybe that you're referring to is the, the way that like public housing is, is managed in Singapore. Uh -huh. The fact that like there are certain quotas for like to make sure that different racial groups mix and live together rather than mm. have that which was a reaction in a way to like what happened during colonial times right for better or for us very interesting thank you yeah that's kind of colonialism in a nutshell right the like mm -hmm. just making quotas making i just think of the way that like africa was just carved up and you know ethnicities were just kind of you know europeans didn't care right well it's a means of control i guess right yeah right mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense thank you for that explanation the book starts off with a speech for, it was from the 6th Asian Advertising Congress of Singapore. It's 1968. And help me here if I'm pronouncing correctly, Raja, um, S. Raja Ratnam. Raja Ratnam, yeah. He says, quote, we do not lay undue stress on the past. We do not see nation building and modernization as primarily an exercise in reuniting the present generation with a past generation and its values and glories. We do not lay undue stress on the past is what I repeat. I wonder why you chose as as the ep I mean as an epigraph um and how mm -hmm. it informs the book. Yeah, I think what I grew up with was the what came after this book, right? Because I was born in the eighties, you know, and, and lived through the nineties and the early two thousands in Singapore. Right. And when I was growing up, there was very much a kind of unquestioned belief in progress. And in the future and what comes next. And Singapore, you know, being a fairly small country, it's it's half the size of New York City mm. um, and a very young country, right? Because it only gained independence from the British in the 60s. Right. Um, I think there was always this sense of danger coming from the outside world. And also because of the very real, you know, trauma that the country has been through, like with the war, with colonialism and so on. Mm. So, so there is this sense of um, having to focus on the future to, to create its own future right to like take its future into its own hands and I think um that's something that every Singaporean probably grows up hearing and as I got older and you know left and got gained some perspective and so I kind of understanding the other implications of that like what is what is gained but also what is lost and what else is intention with that right and so I, I chose that quote because I think it really speaks to that kind of desire for progress like that desire for change um and the determination in a way the determination to like create this new nation mm -hmm. um out of everything that came before right yeah i mean as you as you said a little bit earlier i mean just a maybe pun intended right like tectonic shift right after colonialism and just about mm -hmm. like you said 60s and 70s are not that long ago and then mm -hmm. to the singapore of 2023 Right. Or the Singapore mm -hmm. of 1985. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, just a huge shift yeah. to be able for you to be able to you know, have people in your family and talk to people who were there. It's not like you read about in mm -hmm. a history book. No. And and I really believe people are going to be reading this book as a, as a sort of history book and an incredible explanation of, of what happened because mm -hmm. you're able to focus on individuals. Mm -hmm. So we have yeah. the Lee family. And, and please help me if, if my pronunciations are incorrect. But we have Aboon, who's the main character. Mm -hmm. That's right. right. Yeah. His brother's Hia. It does is all like ah is that like a term of endearment you know a lot of people have the name attached like ah b ah what oh i actually don't know it's just okay. how a lot of names are in singapore yeah. i never really thought about it okay. well, um, we... it's often like a short form for something so your okay. name might be something but sometimes it is just your name i see um, i see yeah and the you know we have um 
the uncle who's very close to Abun, especially in the beginning. I mean, he's a character that we learn about a lot about throughout the whole book. You describe in the book that while the town they live, you know, on the coast by the beach, the town is is there are a lot of lo- loud lives, a lot of you know, you describe like plates being thrown between brothers and sisters and fights and. You know, someone saying, oh, man, I wish like parents almost saying like, I wish you hadn't been born, you know, just mm-hmm. just, you know, just very loud soap opera type lives, but not the Lees. They're they're on the mm-hmm. quieter side. Right. Especially um, Pa, the father is, is mm-hmm. mellow. He shows his love, but it's not in, in a loud way. The, the beginning line of this book is so good. It's like it's like Marquez esque from from 100 Years of Solitude. Quote, decades later, the Kampong would trace it all back to this very hour. Waves drain the light from the slim, hungry moon. Kampong, am I saying that correctly? Uh, Kampong, yeah. Kampong. I, I had a, a great professor named Francisco Jimenez, who's a writer. And he would talk about in Spanish, he would say, the beauty of Mexico is the pueblo. The pueblo has a double meaning. It, it refers to like small towns. And then it also refers to the people as a whole. I wonder about the Kampong, which is, you know, it's such a huge part of this book. Mm-hmm. Is there a special affection you have for the people of these type of towns, mm-hmm. the small town? And then just like this particular one in the book, what it, I guess, represents. Mm-hmm. Well, this one was actually based on a real kampong that existed on the southeastern coast. Okay. Um, so it mentions that it's one of four that are along that coast. And there mm-hmm. were actually four kampongs along the coast that whose livelihoods were impacted by the land reclamation project. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really striking photos of the fishermen of that village you know kind of with their boats and like the traditional boats and the nets and then you see how the sea is like kilometers away from where they are um this was taken after the fact and so i think that was where um this this specific kampong came from um and as for the significance of it i think in singapore you know it's something else that you often hear as part of a you know like nation building and you mm-hmm. know um is this idea of like the kampong spirit right it's almost like a cliche like people talk about it a lot like oh we want to recreate the kampong Mm, spirit in this like new landscape like when you have the all the flats and these like new buildings like how do we recreate that spirit Uh and so i think what i wanted to do was to explore that actual shift from like an actual village into you know the the new landscape and, Mm -hmm. and all of these like big modern buildings and in a way i think there are some ways in which you can recreate it and there are others in which it is truly lost, right? Yeah. Because you can't, I mean, the, so much of a way of life is tied to the landscape and tied to the way you experience the world around you. And once those like physical, like physical markers or like once the actual ground changes, that's, I think that's gone. And mm-hmm. so, and, and it's so amazing to me that like this was a life that existed in Singapore not so long ago, right? That mm-hmm. And that is not to say that like there is another narrative of Singapore that says like, oh, it used to be just a tiny fishing village and now it's this like enormous metropolis. That's also not true because it yeah. was already like a big busy trading port like yeah. when the British were there and that's why the British wanted to colonize it, right? Sure. But there were lots of more rural areas. Um, Singapore used to be 70% urbanized in the 1960s and today it's like 100% urbanized, uh, right? So, uh. so it, it's not that it wasn't urbanized back then. It's just that that urbanization looked very different. It was yeah. often like wooden houses or like lower rise settlements and today it's like this enormous you know it's like concrete skyscrapers like what you see in the movies and so even within the time of the book the kampong is already you know not an outlier but it's not that the entire island looked like that it was like a particular part of singapore it's like particular way of life that was you know threatened and eventually destroyed 
I wonder then like then or now, like, I mean, is there like a negative or positive or neutral connotation with the compound spirit? Or just like, I, I don't know, in a weird way, I think of like hipsters or something like that, right? Like trying to reclaim, but like, like you write about in the book, like there was the chance to keep the compound spirit alive, but it wasn't. Yeah. I just, I just wonder about ideas of kind of like uh, trying to reclaim that. You, you talked about that, how in many ways it's been physically lost. But is Kampong spirit now, does it have the connotation of like family, community, togetherness? Yeah, it does have that connotation. And I think it is, you know, it's difficult to to recreate. I mean, Singapore is still a very communal country, certainly mm -hmm. in much more so than the U.S., based on mm -hmm. my experience living in the U.S. Um, so it's certainly still part of, I guess, yeah, kind of society. Um yeah. And the national fabric but i think it is yeah it's something that within the book um i hope that i think in the book that you see that shift right because at the beginning there, there is there is this kind of sense of togetherness within the community and they're quite isolated right and then once the external changes start happening with the wall and then this like land reclamation project you start to see the ways in which individuals start um, thinking for themselves rather than the community and it kind of tears the community apart in a way right because right. there are all these conflicts that arise um, and that shift in thinking from like oh you know we are we are one community and mm -hmm. this is our way of life to okay what what is best for my family and me and what should I do next which I think is again a very yeah it's like something that happens everywhere in the world not just in sure. Singapore yeah I, I wonder, I mean, the Great Reclamation is not in, is definitely not even really close to ideas of like, you know, MAGA and Make America Great Again. But I just wonder if there's like this idea, if you were in any way influenced by the, the madness in these last six, seven years or more, you know, about making America great again and this some arbitrary date, supposing when things were great, like, is that in any way connected living in the States as you wrote? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think you know I wasn't I did live in Texas at the time so um, I guess connected in the sense of being inherently um, curious and suspicious of any any hearkening to any sense of greatness yeah, right yeah. like in general but I think even that that predates whatever happens in the US I think I've sure. always kind of thought about that and you know having it happen around me as I lived in Texas made it all the more real right this yes. kind of being um yeah just like whenever something is called great uh, thinking about why and like what you know what the euphem what the, what kind of euphemism that is or like what yes. it's hiding or, yeah euphemism for sure yeah. so maybe there's some some of you and uncle maybe yeah I have a lot of sympathy for uncle certainly okay. um as do I yeah and it's funny when I hear people have read the book often some people say they find it very frustrating it's like mm. just get over it man <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm like no he's just he just loves his home and he's sad I, I think his grief oh. is very real oh his grief is so real yes comes through so well um it's not exactly the very very beginning of the book but you were talking about like the idea of like communal living um, and there's, you know, really incredible scenes. You paint them so vividly of the whole town, the whole Kampong, like almost, if not the whole thing, coming to watch as Abun, his father, a couple others, and then some others jump onto the boat. It's because there's been this island, these, these shifting series of islands mm -hmm. that Abun at first is the only one to find. And there's that great line in 
you had a great interview with Robert Siegel the other day. He he quoted that, talks about that, how the, the scene begins is, quote, decades later, the Kempong would trace it all back to this very hour, waves draining the light from the slim, hungry moon. Again, and it's this idea they're taking off. And Aboon is somebody who he's looking for praise in his father's eyes, right? He's in many ways opposite to his brother. His brother is charismatic. His brother is physically strong. Aboon is not. Mm -hmm. I wonder about this idea of like the book starting with this trip out to those islands, but what they would later find the islands and how it's the beginning of the book, but it's also a flashback. Mm -hmm. I wonder like, did the book start for you there or was that something you added towards the end? Um, so the book started with um, Abun going out on the boat originally. Yeah. And then that first section that you're reading from came in, I think, the second draft. Okay. And the reason why I added that was because um, so much of the book plays with point of view and perspective, mm -hmm. because you don't just get Abun's perspective, you get like the perspectives of different members of the community. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense of inevitability that comes yeah. with what happens. And the reason why that's the case is because you know, it's history, it's already happened. Um, and so I think I wanted to bring that inevitability in from the very beginning and also to get that like bird's eye view, the omniscient narrator coming mm -hmm. in and kind of talk, you know, giving it from the communal perspective rather than just Abun. Whereas opening just with Abun, you know, would have been a little smaller, I think, mm -hmm. than the overall scope of the book. Makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a beautiful scene where um, the, the, the woman's name is escaping me, possibly Sweepo. Was yes. the one who no, I'm sorry. She was the one who stayed behind on the boat, right? She was the yeah. one woman who went besides the girl who talked about in a minute, mm -hmm. and just like, but just like people just jumping into the water and so excited to find that island, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, who who can't relate to that idea of just finding something that's that's secret, that's hidden, and just mm -hmm. all the potential mm -hmm. there, right? And yeah. so Abun, in many ways, is you know, he's like a he's like a celebrity in the village, right? In, in the compound, yeah. Right? yeah, he becomes that. Yes, yeah. He he in his narration he writes about. Um, it's such a simple sense, but it means so much. He had the feeling it was important to remember things. Mm -hmm. right? There's the the idea of the mainland. Mm -hmm. We're to assume that the family is Chinese in background. Mm -hmm. And then like you talk about, there's, there's such an inevitability. There's there's this shift and it's slow at times, the shift in the Kampong. We get Pa's story. His father was a gambler. He was a, a drunken person. And when he died, um, Pa will never forget this he, the quote, sum of a man was his pile of clothes. Mm -hmm. Is it safe to say that in his grief that he was, and I would not say in any way punishing or or horrible, but it, would you say that he was rough on his son so the world wouldn't be? Well, I think that he was, but I think that was the way sons were raised at the time. Um, and even in my time, I think that's very much how the older generation viewed, you mm -hmm. know, their, their responsibilities as parents that, you know, the world is a harsh place and that you have to be prepared for it. And understandably so, given what that generation went through. Right, right. Yeah. You know, Abun is seen as lucky. There's a there's a joy, there's a terror in what he's discovered. He doesn't necessarily love the water. There's a scene where he steps on like a sea urchin and it's squishy. It's a, it's a visceral <laughs> feeling for him. Um, there's also a, a new object of, of, of mesmerization, if that's a word. He's mesmerized mm -hmm. by Siok Mei. Am I saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Siok Mei. Right? She is new in the school. The school mm -hmm. is, you know, is in the rural area. It's not as as well um, resourced as we learn later in the schools in the city. We have a, a, a rebel of sorts as the teacher. 
And Siok May is, is a rebel. What is it? Uh, she's such an interesting character. How would you describe her and what her what the draw was for for Aboon <laughs> with her? Mm -hmm. So she is, um, you know, for those who haven't read the book, she's kind of a very spirited, principled young girl, very intense, right? Has her like political beliefs that her parents have, um, and her parents have gone back to China to fight against the Japanese. Um, and so Abun meets her in school. She's effectively an orphan. She doesn't have family, right? And mm -hmm. Very quickly, they become friends and they find in each other, I think, something that uh, the other doesn't have. So what Abun finds is strength. He finds someone who is so has such deep convictions about the way the world works and is not willing to compromise on that at all. Whereas he feels very much like I think, uh, you know, he's like he's as you mentioned earlier, he's he's a little boy who isn't physically strong. He doesn't quite fit into the fishing community, the role that's been set out for him compared to his older brother or like his father, you know, these like images of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's looking for someone, uh, looking for that like strength, but also that kindness, I think. Mm -hmm. And for her, what she finds in him is that like constant, that constancy and that sense of like a family that she's missing because she's lost her parents. She's living with her uncle. Um, and so he is this like almost like a north star in her life as like mm -hmm. she goes on and they go out into the world and you know they they eventually fall in love and their love is tested by all of the different you know political divisive political turmoil that happens mm -hmm. um and each of them end up going different paths but they always seem to get brought back together again and I think that was important for the book because even though it's a coming of age story for Abun I think coming of age is so much it's never really just about the individual. It's about the individual defining themselves in relation to society and to the people they love. Right. And so here you have Abun who, you know, he has the influence of his family, his community, but also Xiao Mei, who's like this very important voice and perspective in his life. Definitely. Yeah, you're, you're so good with characterization. I mean, Xiao Mei is such a, a great character. And there's something about flashbacks that are, you know, especially when it's just like a time of innocence. Mm -hmm. when you When you kind of do that informal you as the reader that informal juxtaposition between the way things were and the way things are and it's you know it's equally it's especially emotional right mm -hmm. and so you think back of like that that contract that they had they had a handshake right mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and Abun, they had a contract and it they didn't necessarily lay out all the terms in the contract but it was you know we're going to be together mm -hmm. in all those ways that it you know and we think about as the book progresses and the different ways their relationship changes, it's just like, oh man, you know, it really, <laughs> really hits I think you that's up. something fiction can do, really. Oh, it's yes. my favorite kind of books, I guess, where you see that change over time. Oh, totally. You're right on. Even, you know, some of the smaller characters, I just, I really appreciate it. Like, Sweet Paul, you describe her as like, she's that nosy neighbor that's <laughs> always bringing things up. And even when she's congratulating you, she's kind of looking for like, you know, like how that affects you and, and, and can be a gossip and she's not mean spirited, but she's just always ready to console and congratulate. I'm like, I know, I know people like that, you know, <laughs> that's part yeah. of what makes up a town or a family or, you know, in this mm -hmm. case, a great book. Um, and so Ma, you know, her story is told is that she's part of a succession of, of women, of, of daughters in the family who are married off. And, you know, she finds a wonderful man. She describes him as the best of men in mm -hmm. Akwat, who's the, the father. And she'd known men, you know, that seen women as, own, as you know, as, as property or with wonder. And she didn't necessarily see that as a good thing either. Right. Almost like apart from the, the husband, from the man. Mm -hmm. And she writes, uh, you write about how the two had, quote, shadows gently intertwined. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's beautiful, so much. right? 
we have you know a couple incredibly pivotal events, and one of them is of course the is invasion the term and the invasion of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Japanese occupation. The occupation. Thank you. That's a better mm-hmm. word. And Lunar New Year, nineteen forty-two. Mm-hmm. And it really is that is that what you got from family members and from your research that it really kind of came out of nowhere, especially for people who lived maybe in areas away from the big city, that it was just kind of like the war, the Japanese invasion was so far off mm-hmm. and then it was there. Well, I think there was a um official narrative coming from the British administration uh, that the, the Japanese were not gonna make it to Singapore. So that was very much the, you know the the messaging that that uh-huh. people were getting right and i think so that whether people believed it or not i think some people did some people didn't but but there was this like common knowledge that like oh singapore is the they called it the gibraltar of the east uh-huh. that it's this like fortress the japanese are never going to be able to make it in and then sure enough they just like reached the defenses within a couple of days and the british just left so this is like a very kind of pivotal moment i think in singapore and history um and and national identity rightly or wrongly right the story of like oh we can't depend on anyone but ourselves if we depend on someone else they will leave us and we will be you know taken over um which i think is something that is very much like held on to even in like modern day singapore you know and, and all countries have this right some kind of like historical event or like persecution or some okay. something from which other things come whether those things are good or not mm-hmm yeah. It is the the term for I, I assume the term for foreigners, white people, Europeans is is that pronounced Ang Mo? Ang Mo, yeah. Ang Mo, and is that again? Is that like? Does that literally mean like white people, European, or does that have like a connotation? It means like... red hair. Okay, right, right, because right. Because the first the first British presumably that people saw had red hair. I think. Ah, yes. I think that's where it comes from. Yes, I believe at that time the the people of Singapore give it give their island the name the Island of Pain. I don't know if they they gave it that, um, but there's a mention in there that the Japanese name it Shionan, okay. and it's very close in pronunciation uh, in Chinese no. to to what what sounds like you know a homonym. I uh, see homophone. Sorry, a uh, uh, island of pain the in the Chinese name. Voice. Okay, yeah. And like yeah. you just said, you know, it's it's. I mean, in another historical event where the Singaporean people say, well, the Angmo, the the white people, the Europeans just gave up. You know, what mm-hmm. happened to like, you know, supposedly being in charge and all that. Once the Japanese moved in, it was kind of like, well, good luck. Yeah. And so a real pivotal event, and you can say as much or as little as you want, <laughs> is when, you know, the Japanese are, are on the island and they talk about registration is needed. Mm-hmm. And again, it's kind of a question of like, what happens? What does registration mean? You know, the men needing to go register. What does that mean? I mean, I definitely was thinking of like Holocaust type things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Is it just another you know bureaucratic thing? No big deal. And so Uncle and Pa, you know, really argue over it for sure. Pa says, you know, why? Why should we do this? He's he resists. And the uncle's like, you know, just let's just do it. It's not a big deal. In the end, the uncle, the uncle wins out. So, you know, what, what we talk about with the registration, you know, eventually the Japanese after I'm, I'm, I'm glossing over after a lot of pain, after a lot of destruction of people and the islands, you know, the Japanese do leave. But, you know, obviously with the war ending, everything like that, because of that, the, you know, I don't know, it seemed like the term was given to those years. I don't know if it was the five years after 
the 10 to 15, but kind of just like the disappearing years. Right. And, and Aboon and, and so many others on the Island see, see things as fleeting, see mm-hmm. things as ephemeral. Like, you know, if, if things can change so quickly as they did with the Japanese invading and bring so much destruction and death, then, you know, what, what can be firm, mm-hmm. what can be, what mm-hmm. can be permanent. I wonder what you got again from family and research about, about those years where there was not the threat of the Japanese, but it was an in-between time. And it was, you know, it was only a few years after such death and destruction. It wasn't like people just said, oh, we're done. Like, I wonder about mm-hmm. those, about those, those morning years, morning with a U. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I didn't, so my grandmother would have lived through World War II. Um, okay. She was a child at the time. Um, and unfortunately, she passed away bef- while I was, before I started really writing this book. So I couldn't uh-huh. ask her about her experiences. Um, and my, my mother hadn't lived through this. Um, but just reading, you know, reading the research, the oral history interviews, and kind of just thinking about what it's like to live through any traumatic event. I think there's always this sort of surreal gloss to reality that happens after, right? Where you're like, oh, it seems like everything has gone back to normal, but I can no longer trust reality because I know before, you know, in the past, I thought I was safe and I am not safe, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there is that, like, that, um, the like the mourning that comes after but also kind of the inability to mourn really because Uh i think people not fully accepting or not fully grieving um what happened because of the need to like survive right to just like rebuild and to go on with their lives um and so i think that was that's why even though you know i know we say like oh the japanese occupation and so it's like a pivotal event in the book certainly Mm -hmm. it takes up very little space actually it's just one it's just one chapter um Mm -hmm. in which I think because so much has been written about World War II in Singapore, um, in Singaporean history and in, in literature, that I I wanted to have it in there, but for the focus really to be on what happens after rather than like the war itself. Right. Um, and how you rebuild and like what the what it's like to live through that and then have to go on, you know, for like mm. another, you know, 50, 60 years. Yeah. Um, living out your life after having been through that and like seen so much death and destruction. Right. So, you know, as Abun gets into his 16, 17-year-old kind of late teens, he goes to the middle school, which is not the way you think about it in the United States um, as far as age. Yuk May is there as a, as a revolutionary of sorts, for sure. She's a rebel rouser. There's the case of Nadra. Mm-hmm. Was that a true case? Yes, that was. So, you know, that really sums up this idea of like kind of that, I know the term's overused, but like a power vacuum. And, you know, the... When when what was the exact year that Singapore got its independence from from Britain? Nineteen sixty three, but that was when it merged with Malaysia. Right. Yeah. And, and in then those it years, left Malaysia in nineteen sixty five. Nineteen sixty five. Right. And in those in those years in the fifties, right? There was it seems like it was kind of a I mean it was a power for sure, but it was more of a soft power from the British. And you know there was that that case seemed like it was such a so um, such a microcosm of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Where correct me if I'm wrong. Nadja was a European girl who'd been basically adopted by a family from the island. Mm-hmm. And then, and the, but the British did not protect the adoptive parents' right to have her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was adopted according to local customs. Right. And she was given, you know, freely for adoption by the Dutch parents mm-hmm. um, to a Malay family. And then I think what happened after the war is that then the Dutch parents came back and, you know, she had been raised within this 
Muslim family and raised uh-huh. as Muslim, and then the Dutch parents came back after and re- kind of reclaimed her. And the they it went to court, and the court said like, oh, you know, the local family has no no right over this uh, this girl. So right. there was a lot of anger and outrage that came out of that decision. Right, a lot of protests, right? And and Siok May definitely got into them, as did Abun. Maybe not with his full heart into it, more more like following her, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And then we have, you know, we have other people come into the mix. They have other friends, um, other people, you know, who are with the cause, just like Siok May is. And again, she, her family, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying, her family is that the revolutionary community, right? In mm-hmm. so many ways, like she, she's basically given herself to a life of sacrifice. She knows that with her parents gone in China is somewhere she really is 100% dedicated to the cause and Abun is not. Mm-hmm. As the story moves on, moves ahead maybe 10 or so years and there's the idea of we have the ga men and we have this idea of land reclamation mm-hmm. obviously the book is called the great reclamation can you explain a little bit you did in that great interview with with robert siegel as well but just ga men like are they seen as just corporate not corporate but just like government lackeys and flat you know like hacks were they seen by most of the population as like a shadow government. These are the people that are, you know, they're dressed in white t-shirts. They're, they have air conditioned offices. They on the surface are looking out for the people. I guess, what was the, what did you, what did you get from the way that the people looked at the Garmin? So Garmin just refers to the government. And so it's just whoever is in charge. Whoever's um, in charge. And, yeah. So whoever's in charge. So previously, I think the book mentioned, you know, it used to be the British and then it becomes the local government. So, mm. so it's just a, a kind of colloquial term for government. Um, and like whoever is in charge is this kind of like oh yeah those people who are in charge are doing this um like a revolving door almost huh not necessarily a revolving door but that there was a sense of that the you know they were making the decisions and the people were kind of following right um and and so this the garment who appear and who are you know responsible for the land reclamation project um are the the locals who kind of gain control um, from the British who basically fight for independence and mm-hmm. take over the, the government from British colonizers. Um, and the land reclamation project, which is what the book is, is named for, was part of this massive urbanization, modernization plan to kind mm-hmm. of pull the country out of poverty and was probably one of the most successful projects in modern history of like yeah. actually, you know, raising standard of living in Singapore to like what we see today. Mm-hmm. And so this was the beginning of that, like this feel again, coming back to that, you know, the feeling of like disempowerment uh, and not being in control of your destiny with all of these like external forces. And then mm-hmm. the result being, okay, now we're going to take control. Like we are the ones who are in charge. We're going to create this like modern, safe, clean city for everyone um, in the country. And the, the kampong being caught up in that as the site of that land reclamation project. Definitely. You you have such a light touch in the book. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no moralizing, there's no editorializing from the author herself. But, you know, it's like there, I mean, so so Natalie is a woman we meet later in the book, and she truly seems to believe she wants a bright, orderly future. She's nice. She's, uh, you know, she's not a violent person, but, she, yeah. you know, she works for the government, right? There's mm-hmm. there's so much about the diction used by you know like order and organization and the diction used by the government by the government. Um, Natalie talks about the greater good, and Abun's kind of like who does she mean when she says we? You know we need the land for eliminating dangerous tenements. 
and you know phrases like a hazy collective and omniscient authority there's a, you, you painted so well in this book about like organization and government and they usually come with the velvet glove right mm -hmm. they come with the handshake mm -hmm. and so it's not like you know you don't paint it as government horrible kampong beautiful saintly innocent yeah because i don't think that was the reality um right i don't i don't think that's i don't think it was that straightforward i think there's you know, I mean, that's a, that's the story that maybe you would get in like a, you know, in, in the news or something. Mm -hmm. where, um, and I think that it's the beauty of fiction that you are able yes. to hold these like different contradictions um, in one place and to kind of present a more nuanced reality. Because I think, you know, the government, the local government at the time, you know, there's a reason why they were able to rise to power, which is the people supported them. You know, right. certainly they were um manipulative in certain ways you know mm -hmm. maybe they might have been yeah as were all the political parties at the time um mm -hmm. but they they did offer something that people uh re related to and they did really you know it wasn't it wasn't corrupt in the sense of like becoming the government in order to like enrich themselves materially like there mm -hmm. was actually a drive towards um the greater good and that i think the, the complicated thing is that, and I think that's a very hard thing for Americans to understand specifically, mm. um, right? Because mm. you think like, okay, if you have this like kind of organizing power, it must inherently be bad because America comes out of this like democratic tradition. Sure. Um, but I think that's just, which is why I think Singapore is such an interesting case study and in that people often don't know how to like classify it because you can't put it in a neat box because there right. are certain things about it that you're like, oh, that's pretty, you know, like dr draconian, so to speak. That's mm -hmm. what it gets called a lot. But then in other ways, you're like, well, you know, there was, it, it's a country where people are housed and fed and have health care. And, you know, mm -hmm. and in a way, the government that came to power came to power with the support of the people. They were offering right. them something that no one else had offered them, which was a better life. Mm. Um, and I don't want to dismiss that or condescend to the population and mm -hmm. say like, oh, they were tricked or whatever, because they weren't, they were making, you know, conscious decisions about their futures. And that's not something that you can dismiss. Right. Right. Um, and in many ways, like I know the people I, I grew up in that I benefited from it. I, I grew up mm -hmm. in public housing. I went to public schools. Like my life wouldn't have been possible without um, whatever was put in place. Mm -hmm. And so it's this feeling of like, on the one hand, there was all this progress that did benefit everyone and Singaporeans feel that very strongly. But at the same time, you know, there there was a lot that was lost along the way. And maybe yeah. that gets like buried a little more and like not so much acknowledged because of all the like good that did come out of it. Well, I mean, you, you said that everyone benefited. Everyone? I mean, are there, are there still remnants of that great upheaval, the great reclamation? Yeah, I mean, like there's a huge environmental toll, certainly, mm. right? Um and the ways in which like the coast was completely reshaped um, and a lot of the, you know, it, it used to be a tropical island, right? You you would have like, um, I think I read during my research that at some point along the coast, there were these like fields of seagrass and you would have dugongs come, like the manatees, right? Yes. And to me, that was, that was mind boggling because I was like, that's insane. Like I grew up, the sea was, was brown. Right. And okay. it's just like ships everywhere. There's no, yeah. there's no nature. Like where was this? Um, but that, that used to be the case that there was this kind of quite beautiful, unspoiled, lush, mm. um, you know, coast that was drastically changed. And then the irony of that, right. Because with rising sea levels, um, all of the land that was made, who knows mm. what's going to happen to that as well. Right. Class or, or the power of governance and different political parties definitely comes through with themes. You know, we talked about Natalie. 
she grew up on a on a rubber tree plantation, rubber plantation. Later, you know, came to ruin almost literally. But she she writes of a or she talks about a story where when she was a kid, she was wandering. She yeah, she was found by this man who was working the land, and he very matter of factly talks about how his daughter had died of basically didn't have the right health care. She died of malnutrition in some ways. And Natalie, who you could call, you know, bourgeoisie, right? Or you could call one of the ruling class, if if you will, upper middle class. I'm not sure exactly where. She felt, and I believe she truly felt horrible for that, that she was able to get help whenever she wanted it. And this daughter died in anonymity, right? But at the same time, Natalie lives well. She has a nice house. She, you know, she has a nice amenity. So it's that that complication that you that you do so well in this book that, you know, it would it would not have been a as great of a book if it were not, if it were so one-sided, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the quotes from the government people. Quote, progress cannot be won without dedication. Our decisions will not always be popular. We have to make difficult choices that the people cannot make for themselves. That always comes off as tough, right? This idea of like a government making decisions for the greater good and telling the people what they want. Mm-hmm. We see that with, you know, like you said, if not manipulate, if not outright manipulation, maybe some omission. You know, grief, you paint grief so well and so realistically, I feel like. You know, there are there are people grieving for sure. And, in you know, grief is not something that you get over in a year. Grief is not something that you can even identify 15, 20 years later, it seems right. With the way that a lot of people act. I wonder about how, you know, painting such a, a big picture of Singapore and all the changes you're able to so successfully hone in on, you know, one person, three people and just ideas of mm-hmm. grief and, and guilt. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I love this quote that um, Toni Morrison has about writing Beloved and like doing Mm -hmm. the research, right? And she talks about, you know, doing all the research and then turning to the writing and needing imagination to shore up the facts and the data. Um, And I think that was really what I kind of kept close as I was writing that, you know, I'd done all this research, it was really great, but then I now need to focus on the people Mm -hmm. and what it would have felt like to live through this and how the individuals, you know, would have experienced that. Um, And so I think no matter what happens in the book and all the political turmoil and everything, ultimately um, it's about the characters living their lives and just trying to like, you know, survive as like every anyone does at any point in history, whether it's like 1940s Singapore, like present day America, anything mm-hmm. that, you know, these are just people trying to like make sense of their responsibilities and their beliefs and like what they want for, you know, themselves and their community. Yeah. So um, I'm so appreciative, like, like I say, of your ability to to do the micro, the individuals and the, their shyness, their nervousness, their guilt, their grief, and then to write about such a huge, you know, historical event. Love to end with this. You said that, quote, I couldn't have written this book without having left Singapore. So I wonder about like the ideas like a perspective being, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I, I can write about something five years later in a different way than I could today. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what you kind of what you meant by that. Yeah, I think it's just that, um, you know, this book came out of, even though it's historical, it came out of my experience growing up in Singapore and kind of the society I grew up within. Um, and I think that a lot of things that one takes for granted when yes. you live in a place, right, that you kind of accept this like, oh, this is just the norm, right? Mm-hmm. You don't think to question it because that's just the nature of your reality. And it's mm-hmm. only until you leave or you experience something else that you're like, oh, wait, that's a particular choice. So like, that's a particular, you know, this like a way of life that isn't like, 
inevitable. Sure. Um, and so I think it took me leaving in order to kind of gain perspective on that. Um, and not necessarily gain perspective in the, in the sense of like condemning it, but understanding like, right. okay, what are the contradictions and what are the costs, right? Even mm-hmm. as like certain things work out, other things may not. Um, and I think if I had never left Singapore and I only stayed there, it would have been, I don't know that I wouldn't have written this book, but it definitely would have been more difficult. Yeah. I think. That makes a lot of sense. We we definitely tiptoed over a lot of plot points because we want people to enjoy and appreciate <laughs> the book for, you know, we don't want to do any plot spoilers, but just, you know, we talk about a lot of the themes and symbolism that you you do so well. You're also really freaking good at just plot. And oh, there's so you. much, there's so many twists and turns. Um, the ending is going to leave you um, just happy, sad, all, all the above, brutalized. It's, it's so resonant. And there's so much about the book that is resonant. And it's a book that I, as well as so many, will not soon forget. So congratulations. I hope that you, I know it's a, a lot of, uh, you're very busy, but I hope it's a fun busy in these coming weeks. Yeah, and months. yeah, it is. I'm really, I'm really excited. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. And, um, you know, again, continue great luck with your work. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was lovely. Thank you so here. much. Thank you. What a pleasure it has been today to speak with Rachel Hang. Continue good luck to her with her writing, and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thanks so much for listening to this episode 173 with Rachel Hang. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. You can also ask for the podcast by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. Real is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 174, another episode dropping today, March 28th, celebrating Pub Day for Allegra Hyde. Allegra Hyde is a recipient of three Pushcart Prizes, an author of Eleutheria, named a Best Book of 2022 by The New Yorker. She's also the author of the story collection of This New World, which won the John Simmons Short Fiction Award, and her second story collection, The Last Catastrophe, is her new one, and you're going to want to read this one. This episode with Allegra Hyde will go live today around noon. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Rachel Hang, whose work, like the great reclamation, gives you chills at will.